Hi, I'm Rachna. I'm Natalie. And I'm Christy. And welcome to the Triage Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Triage Podcast. I'm Natalie, one of your co-hosts. And today we are here with Anjana Sridhar. And we are so excited because we're going to be talking about her book that will be coming out very soon, um, Healthcare of a Thousand Slights. Uh, Anjana, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Natalie, for the introduction. I'm really excited to be here and speak with you and your team. Um, So a little bit about me. My name is Anjana Sridhar. I grew up in Edison, New Jersey for my New Jersey friends out there. Um, And I went to NYU for undergrad and I studied international relations and minored in Chinese thinking I'd go into the foreign service and become a diplomat. And I found healthcare by accident. I I took on a healthcare internship, just wanted to try something different. And I fell in love with healthcare and the idea of, you know, wanting to increase access and quality of healthcare for all Americans. And that drove me to work at advisory board for two years. Um, I did best practice research for pharmacy strategy. And I also did um, strategic marketing for patient experience and employee engagement work. Um, I decided I wanted to get some experience working within the four walls of a hospital. And in order to better understand how to do that, I got my master's, uh, which in my master's in public administration, focusing in health policy and management at NYU's Wagner School of Public Service. So I'm a double graduate of NYU. And I decided that I wanted to get some more hospital ops, uh, hospital operations experience. And so now I'm an administrative fellow at NYU Langone Health. So it's interesting to me that NYU has followed me throughout my undergraduate, graduate, and now professional career. Um, But I'm really excited to be here and talk a little bit about how my lived experiences and professional experiences inform the book. Of course. And thank you so much for that introduction. And it is funny, and we talked about this a little bit before, but we had the same first job out of undergrad at advisory board. And I know you walked us through a little bit of um, why you chose a career in healthcare and how it kind of found you. Uh, But can you go into it a little deeper about why you chose this career and why you decided to work for a few years before going to graduate school, specifically um, in an area of healthcare that isn't in a hospital, it's in the more consulting research uh, side, side of the house. Yeah, absolutely. Two, a great two-part question. Um, so I think for the first part for me, so I first moved to the United States when I was five years old. And my first experience getting healthcare was very culturally competent. I think I had like a very bad cold or something. And the doctor was like, you know, give her turmeric and hot milk. Like we don't need to give her pills or anything. And that's very, it's a very South Asian tradition to do with a kid who's not feeling well. So I, I think that my parents and I, we, were, we became very comfortable with the healthcare system because our cultural needs were being met. And we lived in a very um, immigrant majority neighborhood and we learned that that was not the case for a lot of our other friends in terms of the healthcare that they were able to access. A lot of them were unable to take time off from work to go to the, to go to the doctor. So it started to spark some questions in me of, you know, everyone says that the United States is the, the most successful and the wealthiest country in the world. So why is it people are having trouble accessing healthcare? And I think I'd forgotten about healthcare for a stretch of time. And then the Affordable Care Act was passed when I was in high school. And there was so much debate and furor around, you know, how can the government mandate universal health insurance? How can the government force people to buy health insurance? How do we ensure health coverage for for all Americans? And so that got me thinking about, you know, what does it mean to have health insurance and what does it mean to access care in a meaningful way? 
And who are the people who are continuously left out of that loop and left out of that conversation about healthcare coverage? And that ultimately led me to think about wanting to learn about healthcare at sort of a 10,000 foot level. And I think working at advisory board was super helpful for that reason, because instead of learning the, the quirks of a particular health institution in a particular health market, I had the opportunity to learn about healthcare issues, but from a very broad range. So, you know, advisory boards, clients or members, as they like to call them, are big academic medical centers that are highly resourced. And some of them are also, you know, community health clinics or critical access hospitals that have very few resources, but all of them are facing the same set or very similar set of challenges. So I wanted to start off my healthcare career with sort of that foundational understanding of what the big healthcare issues were and how hospitals and health systems were tackling them before realizing that I wanted to be on the ground executing against the, the sorts of advice and best practices that advisory board preaches. Yeah, and I love that and I completely agree. Um, similar story here. And you talked about it a little bit in your introduction, but mm. why was it important for you to pursue an MPA as opposed and concentrate in healthcare as opposed to pursuing an MPH or an MHA or a, something of the sort? Why mm -hmm. was that important for you? And how did that help you build relationships within your graduate program with folks who are, who are working on all sorts of um, problems? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me, what really guided my, my search in terms of where to go to graduate school is a, a famous quote from Audre Lorde, who is a famous black queer writer and thinker. And her quote goes something along the lines of, you know, we can't vote in a single issue way because we don't live single issue lives. And so the idea behind that is that everything that we do and all of the systems that we touch are deeply interconnected. So if we want to improve healthcare access, outcomes, quality coverage, we need to be looking at housing, transportation, education, other public goods that people consume on a regular basis. So for me, it was really important to go to a graduate school that recognized that inter interconnectedness and also taught students who were interested in public service more broadly. So for me, a big pull to NYU's Wagner School of Public Services, one, it's a public service school, uh, and two, I got to work with, to your point, Christy, and build relationships with people who were interested in all sorts of things. Some of my closest friends are really invested in education policy. Some of them are really invested in New York City local government. Some of them really care about improving the, the urban transit system in New York City and you know, finding, finding innovative ways to reform the MTA. So for me, all of those things are so intrinsically connected to health and what it means to live a healthy life. And so that's what really drove me to get an MPA because it allowed me to work with different types of people and build relationships with them, but also have a better understanding of how all of these issues intersect. Yeah, that's so important. And it's something that we all agree with. That was the kind of the mission behind this podcast is to show how that's all connected. And the fact that you're able to be in a classroom with people who are, um, becoming experts in all of those different fields in the future, you know that your network is full of an all-encompassing group of folks who can help you actually make change where you want to see it. And so thank you for, for explaining that to us. And you obviously had to balance your time between writing this book, interning, applying for your administrative fellowship, you had class, and <laughs> How did you balance it all? Um, because I feel like in the past, a lot of people had been able to just go to graduate school or go 
to college and pursue their degree and work on the side. But now there's a lot more expected of students to um, have that holistic education. So how did you stay sane throughout it all? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, uh, just being very strategic about time management was important and being very disciplined, I think was also important and having accountability partners along the way were really helpful. So I'd have a couple of friends who, you know, I'd be like, all right, you see, if you see me goofing off on like Facebook or something like that, like tell me to stop and tell me that I need to finish this chapter by X date because my editor is going to want to look at it. Um, so I think it was really helpful to have people in my immediate circle push me and make me recognize that I needed to do things in a timely fashion. Um, and I also tried to be very um, careful about setting boundaries around like non-work time, so to speak. So during the pandemic, like I didn't write on weekends. I was like, that is the one, the, those two days, I'm not even going to look at the book. I'm not going to respond to messages about the book or anything like that. I'm going to reserve Monday to Friday to just write. So being very disciplined in that sense was very helpful. And also relying on my developmental editor was really important because she was the one who was able to keep me on track and say, by next week, all right, based on our conversation, by next week, this is what I want to see. Um, and so knowing that somebody was going to look at my work within uh, the next week or so made me realize like, okay, I really have to get serious about doing the research for this and conducting the interviews for this and stuff. And so it was definitely a combination of self-discipline, time management, and uh, relying on my support system to get me through. That's huge. And I, what you said is very important in terms of scheduling your time to get your work done, but also strategically scheduling your time to relax a little bit because mm -hmm. you can't get a lot done if you're not giving yourself time to relax and to unwind. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really happy that you did that for yourself yeah. and had that support system around you. And I think it's a good lesson for all of us to push our friends to be their best selves, but also lend a hand in helping them learn how to relax and learn how to live their best life. So definitely yeah. love that. And now you are currently participating in an administrative fellowship. Um, do you mind walking us through what that is for folks who may not be familiar and um, maybe touch upon what you hope to get out of the fellowship? Yeah, absolutely. So for, for listeners who don't know, an administrative fellowship is specifically designed for people who have just graduated with their master's degree in healthcare. So it could be an MPH, an MHA, an MPA in healthcare, an MBA in healthcare, you name it. Um, but it, it's designed for people who have just graduated from their master's programs. And it's also designed to allow for exposure to senior leadership and to work on different types of projects that are of importance to that health system's strategic priorities. So for me, I'm doing a lot of process improvement, quality improvement projects, um, whether it's on specific units of the hospital or specific departments or uh, working on projects that stretch across a variety of departments and working with, you know, working within multidisciplinary teams with medical directors and nurse managers and physical therapists and social workers. So it, it's a really good opportunity to gain exposure to different parts of hospital operations and just how a hospital functions. And the point is that by the end of your administrative fellowship, you've developed the skills that you need to be successful in hospital operations and that will serve you well in your next role post fellowship. And so in terms of what I'd like to get out of my administrative fellowship, I definitely, you know, wanted to get a better sense for how does a hospital function. I think of a hospital as sort of to, to take it back to, you know, high school biology as sort of like a cell, right? There's like all these different moving parts and each part is responsible for a different thing, but all of them come together to ensure that 
in this case, the hospital is thriving and is able to take care of patients successfully and provide them with the best experience and provide their families with the best experience. So I just wanted to be a part of that and be a part of that engine and also get a better understanding of how hospital operations impacts healthcare disparities, right? So are the systems that are designed to schedule a patient for a procedure, is that going to be prohibitive or non-inclusive to a particular type of patient because of inability to pay or because of English not being a first language or something? So I'm always trying to think through hospital processes and protocols from the lens of equity and figuring out what are opportunities for us to improve considering um, how inclusive we can be of our patient population. Wow, that sounds really incredible. And honestly, you sound already so successful to me. <laughs> your fellowship, And now you have this exciting thing coming out. You have your book. It's coming uh -huh. out in December this year, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your book, Healthcare of a Thousand Slides. What is it about? And how did you decide to start writing a book? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I, again, really good two-part question. So in terms of, you know, what the book is about and why I decided to start writing it, so the book is basically tracking the impact of policy-based discrimination on healthcare access and outcomes among marginalized communities. And the reason I wanted to track that specifically is because I think there's lots of dangerous narratives about specifically marginalized communities, uh, Black and indige Indigenous communities, communities of color, LGBTQ plus communities, uh, people who identify as poor or living in rural, rural America. There's lots of dangerous narratives around um, these communities and how they take care of their health. But what I wanted to point to is that the reason that those narratives exist is because of policy-based discrimination, specifically from policies that are A, not healthcare related, and B, policies that were developed hundreds and hundreds of years ago, in some cases dating back to the founding of the United States as we know it. So I, I thought it was really important for people to recognize that, and I think this kind of gets to the, the crux of what the triage is all about as well, is that you have all of these non-healthcare-based policies that ultimately impact how people are able to access not just healthcare, but other public goods and services in general. And with respect to you know, why I decided to write a book, I got very lucky in that a uh, Georgetown professor named Eric Custer reached out to me in January saying, hey, you've got this really great LinkedIn presence. You seem to write a lot and know a lot. Would you be interested in joining this workshop that I'm doing, this book writing class where I teach people how to write a book and I have a partnership with a publishing company so I can help you get set up. And so I was able to learn a little bit more about him and his program and recognize that one of the strengths of the program was that there was a publishing company and there was gonna be editing support along the way. So I think generally writing a book is a very lonely experience, but having had a developmental editor to like help me think through my ideas and how to structure the book was really helpful. Having an editor to actually edit my first, my first draft, which was due in, at the end of June, having a marketing editor to help me get out the word about my book. So just getting that kind of support throughout the journey was really helpful for me. So I think, you know, I knew this was a story that I wanted to tell because I think being in grad school, it was surprising to me how many people have these unconscious biases about communities and how they access their healthcare. But I think I, I felt even more called to writing this book because of the COVID-19 pandemic and especially because of George Floyd's murder and the murder of so many other black and brown, straight and LGBTQ plus people at the hands of systemic oppression. So I, I think it's important to me that I'm intentional about connecting all of those issues and showcasing to readers why it's important to consider all of these non-healthcare aspects in how communities access health. Wow, that's 
amazing and you know as you mentioned before we at the triage we're trying to also put out episodes on these types of topics so it's awesome to see more people like you working and writing books like the more awareness there is out there the better educated people will be and you mentioned on your book website that you have five different parts of the book can you just kind of delve into why there's five parts and what they're each about absolutely so what I tried to do is I tried to group different communities based on their lived experiences. So what I did was, you know, one chapter would be about one community and their relationship to health over time. So I had a, I have a chapter on black health, on indigenous health, on Asian health, on, you know, Latinx health, on the health of the poor, the health of those living in rural America. Um, so what I decided to do is group chapters based on common experiences. So for example, when we talk about you know, sort of the people in the United States who are the most oppressed or who have been oppressed for the longest period of time, it's black folks and indigenous folks. So I put them together in one chapter as sort of the people who came first, right? It's uh, obviously indigenous people were here well before any of us or white European settlers came. And then black folks were brought here in chains, you know, 300, 400 years ago. Then I, the next set of chapters is focused on on people who came a little bit later. And when, when I say that, I'm talking about people who emigrate to the United States. And there's a history of, you know, waves of Latinx immigration, waves of Asian immigration, as again, a result of policy that's not healthcare related, but ultimately has effects on the health of those communities. And then I also wanted to have a section on those who are poor and those who are who live in rural America, because I think those are stories that often get left left out, especially of you know, urban, you know, left-leaning circles. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that experience. I also wanted to talk about the communities that have been advocating for a long time and that are generally associated with the civil rights movement. So, you know, women's liberation in the 60s and 70s and LGBTQ plus liberation that also took place around the same time. And I think we tend to associate liberation and activism with a specific time frame for those communities. Like, oh yeah, those bra burners, that was in the 60s, right? Um, and, you know, angry queer people, that was the 60s too. But the point is that that activism continues and the health outcomes of those communities are still not as optimal as they could be. So I wanted to group those two communities together to talk about them. And then finally, I close out the book, the fifth part, um, trying to talk a little bit more creatively about solutions. So I wanted to talk about how policy and technology uh, respectively can be used as vehicles for change and how certain startup organizations and certain, you know, really innovative policymakers are thinking about how to use those tools to make sure that we're making progress and helping improve the health outcomes of marginalized communities. And then I have a final epilogue sort of chapter that's still being written about COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter and how those are continuing to tie into the ways in which we view healthcare access. So that was a very detailed, but hopefully comprehensive overview of the five parts of the book and why I decided to break down uh, the book in that way. Wow, awesome. And I mean, so based off of what everything you've said, um, your book is about marginalized communities and how they have their struggle with healthcare access. And mm -hmm. given the political climate that we're in, this is so important to be exposing people to stuff like this. What is the most important lesson you think that people will gain from reading your book? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest lesson that people will gain is sort of how ingrained so much of, you know, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, you know, hatred of people who are poor, 
all of those sort of very negative things, how ingrained they are in our healthcare system and how people access healthcare. And it's not, I think a lot of people might re, might think that that's sort of a newfound thing, but you know, these stereotypes and the development of this unconscious bias has been a long time coming and continues to impact healthcare. But at the same time, I don't want people to feel like, oh, well, this is how it's been for 400 plus years. So we're kind of doomed to continue the status quo. I also, that's why I also wanted to add those chapters on policy and technology to say, hey, there are opportunities to improve things and make things better, but we can't do that unless we reckon with the truth, which is that healthcare access is, was not equally designed for all people. And so it's important for me to, to showcase that a lot of non-healthcare policies that were passed well before any of us were born, well before even our parents or grandparents were born, and how that has impacts on the way people access healthcare in the 21st century. Thank you so much. And I think that's really, really important to acknowledge. And I think that doing that in your book is very powerful. And I think it's going to be a new take on um, and also diving deeper into, for us, I feel like for us as like people who are being educated in the healthcare system, we're acknowledging these, these um, injustices and these, these systemic um, foundations. But for people who are just being now exposed um, to learning more about healthcare because of COVID, people who are taking part in the Black Lives Matter movement for the first time, I think this book is going to be a really great way to dive deeper into learning about the background of our country and how it is affecting people today. So yeah. thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to read your book after um, researching you and hearing about your description right now, um, talking about the book. And um, we wanted to ask as well, what um, biggest health disparity would you like to help solve in the future? So you talked a little bit about your epilogue, um, talking about COVID. And looking beyond that, uh, what would you like to help solve with um, all of your amazing gained experiences? And what do you what do you think? I think for me, the biggest one of the biggest health disparities that stands out to me is maternal and fetal mortality among communities of color and specifically uh, black women and indigenous women who suffer from this. I think that it's such a such a travesty that we live in, you know, what's considered a highly developed OECD country, but we aren't able to take care of our black moms and their and their kids. And I think that's, that's unacceptable and it shouldn't be the case at this point in time. So something that I think is really important is that, um, something, something that I think is really important is that we need to do better um, for our moms and kids. And if we're a country that truly values the future, we wanna make things better for, for moms and their kids. And I think something else that I wanna really point out is, and I think this is becoming more and more of a conversation, is improving mental health. I don't really dive too deeply into mental health in the book, because I think that can be its own, its own book. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of stigma around mental health issues, including issues of addiction. And I mean, we're talking now about the opioid crisis. We're looking back at the crack cocaine epidemic and talking about how we could have handled that differently. Um, but I think we need to be more critical about making sure that people have access to mental health care. And to your point, Natalie, you were talking about COVID-19. A lot of people's mental health has been exacerbated as a result of having to quarantine alone or like losing their jobs or having to work in essential roles where they might be exposing themselves and their families to COVID-19. So for me, the two biggest healthcare disparities that I wanna continue thinking about and focusing on are you know, protecting moms and kids and also ensuring that marginalized communities in particular have access to the mental health care that they need. 
Absolutely. Thank you. And I think um, the for folks listening who may not be in the healthcare field or maybe are, are starting their journey um, as students within the healthcare field, I feel like the number one thing you could do to help with both of those disparities is having a conversation. So like how we're having a conversation right now, talking about mental health with your loved ones, and especially for um, future medical school students um, or those in the medical care field, talking to your patients and really listening to them is so important because I've read so many heartbreaking stories of women and specifically black women and indigenous women as well who have brought up concerns about maybe pain or knowing that something wasn't just having that gut feeling that something internally isn't right with their doctor. And as a result, um, they have a issue with um, giving birth or there's, um, they unfortunately pass. And that's all something that could have been avoided with, avoided with more thorough care and culturally competent care as well. So I think those are really two really important disparities to address. And I think you're a very competent person to be addressing this. So I'm excited to follow your journey. And that kind of helps me progress into my next question. Uh, what's next in store for you? Any uh, Thinking about writing any more books? I know you're still writing the epilogue, but just thinking ahead, what's next? No, that's such a great question. I think for me, I just want to continue focusing on on this book and seeing what sort of comes out of it with respect to questions or if people are like, especially when the book officially comes out and people have thoughts on like, hey, I really like, I really loved this section, I but I wish you would have delved more into this. Um, I think that would have been really interesting. I think something else that I'm really curious about exploring is I think, especially in the South Asian, specifically uh, among Hindu Americans, among our community, there's been more conversation around caste and caste discrimination as it shows up in the diaspora. So for people who are not aware in Hinduism, there's something known as the caste system and it's a social hierarchy um, that unfortunately has been used to exploit people who are quote unquote, unquote at the bottom of the hierarchy who are considered untouchables. And so it's funny because I think a, a lot of times we, we associate caste with you know, India, but at the end of the day, we have a sizable Indian American population in the United States and the sort of the discrimination and the bias and the stigma does carry over when people emigrate here. So I've been thinking more about you know, what does caste discrimination look like in healthcare and what does it mean to be somebody who identifies as a lower caste person and how, how are you accessing healthcare and what are sort of your barriers and challenges? And I recognize that that's, that's a very niche sort of conversation because it's important to sort of educate more wholly on caste as it is, but it is something that I'm interested in with respect to, you know, there's this marginalized community within a marginalized community and how are they accessing healthcare? So that's a question I'm interested in exploring, whether or not that takes on a book form, I'm not entirely aware of, but it's definitely a research question that I'd be interested in exploring a little bit more. Absolutely. And if it's affecting a population, whether it be a niche part of a marginalized group, it's still affecting people. So I think that's really important to explore. Um, and we've also had a lot of, we also talked a little bit about 2020 as a whole in this conversation, uh, talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, again, talking about COVID. And what lessons do you think are going to come from this heck of a year that we've been having. Yeah, so absolutely. So I think, I think a lot of people are already learning these lessons. There have been so many amazing think pieces. And I think the biggest lesson that I've learned, and I'm sure a lot of others have learned as well, is that America's healthcare system is incredibly patchwork, right? So your healthcare coverage is dependent on the state that you live in, the political administration of that state, whether or not they support initiatives like 
Medicaid expansion if you're a low-income person, whether or not they support reproductive health rights and a, right, a right to abortion um, if you're a woman or someone who identifies as having a uterus. Um, so those are all the sorts of questions that are highly contingent on you know, who's in office. So I think in the United States, healthcare is inherently political. And the way that we view healthcare is not as a human right. Um, we view it as a privilege. And I think that's been made abundantly clear through the COVID pandemic. And the fact that our healthcare coverage is tied to employment status is something I think people are realizing more and more the, the harms of that, because obviously during the economic crisis that we're facing, a lot of people are losing their jobs, which means that they're losing their access to healthcare. And so, you know, all of the hard work of the Affordable Care Act to increase coverage has sort of been turned upside down because people are losing their jobs and are therefore losing their coverage as well. So for me, I think it's the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed so much of what is wrong with healthcare, but it's unfortunately exposed it all at the same time. Um, so I think there's a lot for people to reckon with and there's a lot for people to realize, but I do think it's important for us to think about this as, you know, this is really horrible that millions of people died and so many people were so terribly affected, but what does this mean for the future? How are we going to prepare for the next disaster? How are we gonna prepare for you know, whatever is to come in the future? So I think it's been a painful time for people, but it's also been an opportunity to reflect, especially aspiring um, healthcare policymakers and healthcare operations managers, what can we do to make things better for patients moving forward? Thank you. Um, that's really impactful and something that I think we at the triage can agree with as well. And so where can people find you and um, as well as your book? That's a great question. So where people can find me, uh, I unfortunately spend the most amount of time on LinkedIn. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but that's my favorite form of social media like more <laughs> than Instagram. So people can feel free to add me on LinkedIn, message me if they have questions about my professional trajectory or my book. And I can also follow up and provide my personal website that has a lot more information about the book and other podcasts and talks that I've done about the book and healthcare disparities more broadly. So I'm happy to send that information and perhaps um, you guys can include it in your show notes or something. Absolutely. We could also highlight you on our Instagram as well. We can take a screenshot of your profile so people could find you very easily. I love that. Um, That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. And where can we, did you mention where we could find um, your book? I'm sorry. Oh no, that was, you asked the question, but I didn't answer it. So. No, no worries. <laughs> So there's actually, ironically, one more day left in my pre-sale campaign. Um, so if, I don't know when this is going to come out, but if it comes out before August 17th, uh, that's the, uh, I do have a pre-sale link on Indiegogo that people can pre-order the book on. And if you pre-order the book, you get a signed copy, you get acknowledged, you get to help me pick out my cover and all this fun stuff. But if you aren't able to, to buy before August 17th, then the book will be on sale on, on Amazon and Kindle in December. So watch out for the link. And if you follow me on LinkedIn, I'll definitely be posting about it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anjana, for joining us today. We are so excited um, to read your book. And thank you so much for sharing your wonderful journey with us. Yeah, absolutely. It's been such a pleasure speaking with all three of you. I'm really grateful that you know, the three of you bring such interesting perspectives, you know, with one person in medical school and one person pursuing a public health degree and another person in healthcare consulting. You're all in healthcare, but you're coming at it from different angles. And so I think you bring a lot to the conversation, especially for your listeners. So thank you for having me and thank you for having created this podcast. I think this is awesome. Oh, thank you so much.
yeah of course all right everybody so uh, thank you so much for listening and we will catch you on our next episode bye